Welcome to the Daily Theology Podcast, episode number 19. I am your host, Stephen Oakey. Today's episode features a conversation with Father Timothy Radcliffe of the Order of Preachers. While Father Radcliffe was visiting Chicago for a lecture, our own John D. Costanza and Dennis Madison had an opportunity to speak with him. Throughout their conversation, they talk about the young Timothy Radcliffe's bad boy days, the importance of friendship for vocation, and hope in the midst of suffering. One thing to note, if the audio sounds a little bit off early on, there were some technical difficulties, but we evened it out, and the conversation is well worth a listen. As always, you can leave us feedback on the blog or on iTunes, and thank you very, very much for listening. Well, I am Dennis Madison, and this is John DeCostanza, and we are here with Father Timothy Radcliffe, a Dominican friar who has served as Master of the Order for nine years, and he also holds the role of Consultor for the Pontifical Council for Justice and Peace. Thank you, Father Timothy, for being with us for this very special daily podcast today here in Chicago. I'm absolutely delighted to be here. So Father Timothy, let's begin by talking a little bit about your upbringing. Was there any religious or spiritual dimension to your upbringing and do you think that it played any role in your becoming a theologian and a priest and and how might you think about that now? I grew up in a, in a Catholic family which was uh, was very committed without being very pious. Uh, we didn't see religion as being a terribly uh, uh, devotional thing where we all had to put on special faces. Uh, it was just a part of being a human being. And I think that was very important for me. Religion isn't some special part of life. It's just being alive. I think what was also important was the influence of a great-uncle of mine uh, who was called our great-uncle Dick, John Lane Fox. And he was a wonderful man. He'd been in the First World War as a chaplain. And every night he would go out into no man's land and bury the dead and carry back the wounded. And everybody said, you're mad. You won't last uh, a week. But he did it throughout the whole of the war. He lost an eye. He lost the fingers on one hand. Uh, but he was a man of immense courage. And he baptized me. And he gave me first communion. He he was, in a way, a, a crucial figure in my childhood. And what struck us about Uncle Dick was that he was filled with joy. So from the very beginning, I associated my faith, religion, with with profound happiness. I think that was very important. It, it was just striking me in your answer, the way in which you were the corporal works of mercy sort of came out in Uncle Dick's life and the connection to joy. And I was wondering if you could you could talk a little bit about that. You know, here we are in the year of mercy and you're consultor for the Pontifical Council on, for Justice and Peace. And mercy has been a really important focus of Francis's pontificate. And I was just struck by that. Could you tell us a little bit about the role that mercy plays in the life of a Christian and and how you think about mercy in your own life. It's, it's interesting that the word mercy in, in the Gospels covers two things. It's a response to people who suffer. Uh, where the blind uh, cry out to Jesus, have mercy on us. But it's also a response to people who've got into a mess. And 
you might think that they're very different things. But I think what all mercy is about is in the first place letting yourself be touched by the pain of another. That the word in Latin, misericordia, is beautiful. Miseria means the pain, and cordia means the heart. Letting your heart be touched. And the Greek word in the New Testament for mercy basically means being thumped in the guts. So when Jesus has mercy, it's that he's, he's touched by what people suffer. He reaches out to them. You've got to. And in a way, whether it's their fault or not is entirely irrelevant. Whether it's because of sin or just pain, doesn't matter. What matters is that somebody suffers and that you're drawn to them. And Pope Francis talks a lot about overcoming our indifference. The first thing he did as Pope was to go to Lampedusa, the little island where people were arriving uh, from North Africa, from the Maghreb. And, and they were dying on the way. And he said, we have to break through the indifference we feel to the suffering of these people. And I love the fact that in, in the Bible, in Ezekiel and different ways, Jeremiah it says, I will take out your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And if you, if you lose your heart of stone, then you will feel, and you'll feel pain of people, and you'll feel their joy. And I think that the, the main thing in this year of mercy is that we become woken up to what people live, sensitive with hearts of flesh and not hearts of stone. So then we'd like to ask, how did you get into ministry and theology? Was it that path of faith and joy that you were speaking about, of mercy? When I, I was at school, educated by the Benedictines for 10 years, it never crossed my mind to become a priest or join a religious order. I mean, I was a happy Catholic, but I was also one of the bad boys, you know. I was always smoking behind the cricket <laughs> pavilion and going out to the pub. Uh, and what changed things is when I left school, and for the first time I had friends who weren't Christian. And they said to me, what you believe isn't true. I thought, not true? This was an immense challenge. Is it true? And I became obsessed by the question, is it true? And then I remember that there was an order which had the motto, Truth, Veritas. Uh, but I couldn't remember which order it was. <laughs> so I telephoned the Benedictines and they said, it's the Dominicans. And that's what drew me to the order and the end of priesthood was a slowly unfolding passion for truth. So how has that passion for truth unfolded in your life as a theologian and minister, how, how has that animated your vocation? It's been a slow journey. I think when I was a 20-year-old joining the order, I, I had a very naive understanding of truth. I just thought we got it all wrapped up. And as I remained in the order and as I studied and, and I made good friends with people who weren't Catholics or weren't Christians, I discovered the truth was, was also... It was a gift and a journey. It's something that, in a way, that's, that we've received in the Gospels and in the Church, but it's also always to be found. So you're always 
at only at the beginning of understanding. And the, the longer that I go on uh, in this pursuit, I would say the more I realize how little I know and how I'm just at the beginning of getting a little glimpse. So this may be the place to follow up with this question. I've been wondering this. A large part of your visit here to Chicago has been for the 800th Jubilee of the Order. And you know we, we've talked about truth, the motto of the Dominican Order, Tell us a little bit about what it means to you to be a Dominican and to understand the vocation of Dominic and the order uh, 800 years after its founding. The first thing I would say is uh, 800 years is quite a while. If you look over those 800 years, what you see is we've gone through all sorts of crises. Crisis of the Black Death, which wiped out about half the order. Crisis of the Reformation. A lot of people dying, martyred. The crisis of Napoleon, who, who closed down religious life all over Europe and, and wherever he could. The crisis of the First World War, all the terrible 20th century wars of, and destruction. And so I look over a long history with wonderful moments, but also bags of crisis. And what you see is you don't ever avoid crisis in your own life or in the life of, of those to whom you belong, your family, your order. We all go through it. And the crucial thing is not how we can be safe from crisis. We can't. The crucial thing is how we live it. And that you live it as, as potentially fruitful because human beings grow up through crisis, you know. Birth is, is a crisis. So the first thing I would say, looking back over the long history of the order, is don't be afraid of crisis. My American brethren gave me a t-shirt which said, have a good crisis. <laughs> I, I've got a bit too sort of, uh, I think it's shrunk, should we say. I can't get into it any longer. So that's the first thing I would say. The second thing you see is that all during this long 1800 years, we're always encountering new movements, new insights, new cultures. So at the birth of the order, you have the encounter with Islam, carrying Aristotle, which had been preserved often in Eastern Europe. But later on, we have new currents of, of thought, of feeling, of culture, which we encounter when we come to the Americas, for example or in the Enlightenment, or today. So I would say that the great thing is 800 years sounds a long time, but we're always, I hope, fresh. And that now in the 21st century, we're, we're still having to say, who are the thinkers? Who are the writers? Who are the poets? Who are the filmmakers? Who are the people who are creative that we want to engage with? Dominic sent his first young friars to the universities, to, to Paris, to Bologna, to Madrid, to Oxford. And he didn't just get them to learn facts. He wanted them to sit at the feet of the thinkers of their time. And that's what I hope we go on doing. 
on a personal level, are there specific spiritual practices, maybe from the Dominican tradition, that get you through various crises that you experience? I would say, uh, first of all, it, for me it's very important to have quiet in my life. Periods of quiet, usually early in the morning, before most people get up, is to have times of silence. Because we're always talking to God, but we don't always listen to God. So you need times where you are still, tranquil, receptive. So I think that the practice of silent presence to God is absolutely fundamental. I would also say, obviously, I taught scripture for 14 years at Oxford. And living with the Word of God, loving it. It's always new, it's always fresh, it's always surprising. So having one's daily little bit of encounter with the Word of God will be really important. I also love to walk. I think walking, we're, men, we're friars, you know, we walked all over, all over Europe. Dominic was always on the road. And certainly when I'm in Oxford, every day I try to get out a bit into the fields get out into the country and, and be quiet, watch the birds, see the animals, be alert. It's one of the things I learned as a child, because we lived in the country, is that every evening I would go out in the dusk, in the woods. And I think for me that's an immensely refreshing thing, to walk in the woods. There was a Japanese theologian, who wrote, God walks at three miles an hour. And that's very humane, isn't it, you know? Doesn't always go jogging, but strolls at a decent pace. And when you walk, you see, and you meet people. So I'd say walking was another. And I could, if you want, talk for hours about, obviously, the role of friendship. In the Dominican tradition, friendship is absolutely key. Thomas Aquinas, our great theologian at the beginning, uh, Aquinas saw the life of God as the eternal friendship of Father and Son in the Spirit. Uh, and that's a friendship we have to learn with the brethren, with lay people, with men and women. And I think friendship is, is part of the daily bread. Who, who were some of those friends and mentors for you that have really shaped your journey? People that have, you know, walked with you for a time in that long walk with God. Many, many. One of them, I'd say, I would start with was uh, a, a Dominican friar called Cornelius Ernst. His father was Dutch. His mother was Sri Lankan Buddhist. He was a man of vast culture studied under the philosopher Wittgenstein at Cambridge, uh, became a Catholic because he wanted to hold together the Christianity of his father, the Buddhism of his mother, the philosophy of Wittgenstein, his love of poetry and literature, and he wanted something big and spacious. And so he became a Catholic uh, and a Dominican, and uh, he died, alas, in his early 50s, but he was my first teacher and of immense importance. Lots of other friends who I've now known for, for, for decades. I was a university chaplain 
in London. And the students, my first students, I think remain some of my closest friends. They're now, uh, of course, they were 18 then. They're now grandparents. But we meet at least a couple of times a year. We have go away for weekends together, 16, 20 of us. And these people are, are greatly important to me. But also many women friends. I, I would encourage every friar, you know, you've got to have your friends who are lay people, women, who, who share with you, um, you know, some of your strengths, but also tell you your weaknesses too. Honest, good friends who help you not to take yourself too seriously and with whom you have a good laugh. That's fantastic. I, I was wondering, you mentioned your life as a university chaplain. And some of those out there that listen to us are really deeply invested in ministry. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the connection between theology and ministry and the way that you think one informs and feeds the other. People think of of theology as this great abstract discipline where you learn complicated words like consubstantiation. (laughs) But actually, one way of understanding theology is that you read the world, the world in the light of the Word of God. But you read the Word of God in the light of the world and all its modernity and its new insights and things. There's always a to and fro. Because, sure, I'm a believer. And so my faith is at the heart of my, my life and my being. But I'm a modern person. Believe it or not, even at this ancient age, I'm a modern person. I read modern books, I go to modern films, I have modern doubts, I have modern questions. And theology actually is the conversation that's always happening between the Word of God and modernity, and it happens inside here. So the point about being a theologian isn't that I've got lots of wise things to tell people. I'm trying to bring together the believer and the modern person. And that's what you're doing in ministry. You're out there and you're hearing people's problems and their their struggles and their joys and you're making them your own so that you understand the Bible anew. What what do you think is the most pertinent or critical conversation right now? One of many, probably. I think, Dennis, one thing is that we live in a society, I think in the West, which is quite afraid of difference. We're afraid of people having different views. And so there is a retreat into the communities of the like-minded. Richard Sennett of of New York University has written eloquently about this. And it's reinforced sometimes by the world of Internet Internet, you know, you connect with people who, who think like yourself. Disagree, disconnect. And you know what you get on Facebook and things, you know, like or dislike. So I, I think a temptation of our culture is to live with people with whom we agree. And when we find real disagreement, we, we disengage. And I think one of the biggest challenges is to rediscover the art 
of enjoyable, rational engagement with people who are different. It could be that they're religiously different. That's why I think dialogue with Islam is one of the great challenges of today. But it's men and women. Are we able to, to really accept that men and women are equal and different? Or young and old? I live in a community of young people. The average age of my community would be in the early 30s. Now I have to engage with them and be challenged. Culturally, you know, here we are, a couple of Americans and a Brit. So I, th- I think always the, one of the big challenges today is how confidently we let other people interrogate us, put us on the spot, ask us questions to which we don't know the answers, and so that we see difference as richness and not as threat. I mean, some people might say this is a big challenge in the United States at the moment, with the non-conversation between Republicans and Democrats. So I would say that's a a really important conversation. It's a conversation about how we're we're bright enough to have conversation. I actually think that it's one of the biggest challenges in the church right now, and certainly, you know, even among theologians, is how we talk to one another when we are ethically committed to very different things, you know, and and I'm wondering if you think that that's the biggest challenge to your or our vocation right now, or if there's something else that presents a deep challenge to us. I would I would agree that that being able to transcend boundaries, break through them, it's it. People often say, "Don't put labels on people." That's half true. Because labels can be confining. Labels can mean that you already know what they think before they say another word. But you have to allow for people having different convictions. But you have to believe that this is an opportunity. Look at the Gospels. The Gospels have... Sorry, look at the New Testament. The New Testament canon has four Gospels. And they're all different. I would say that Christianity of its very nature, loves difference. Four Gospels, all disagreeing with each other. The Old Testament and the New Testament. There was a great pressure to drop the Old Testament. Let's make it simple. Let's make it coherent. We just have the New Testament rejected by the Church. Jesus Christ, truly human and truly divine. Many people were tempted, let's go for one or the other. It's simpler. But actually, Christianity, in its wisdom, always went for complexity. And this is what the church at the moment often is afraid to do. Simple answers. We don't want to confuse the faithful. Could you tell us about a time when you feel like your vocation required conversion? Your faith required a moment or encountered a moment in which you felt the need for, for some kind of seizure change from one moment to the next. I would mention two moments of conversion. The first was in my vocation. When I went to, to London to be a university chaplain in the early 70s, I arrived there thinking, I've got lots of wonderful things to tell these young students. Hmm. Well, I was young myself. I was only in my late 20s. 
And uh, I found that they, they didn't particularly respond to my preaching. And that was quite a crunch. Uh, because I, I suddenly thought, do you know, I, I'm not very good at this. Uh, in fact, I'm a bit of a failure. And I had a meeting with the main group of students and we sat down and I said, this isn't going well. And then I realized that actually I had, instead of just going and talking to them, I had to listen to them. And when I preached, I had to go to the pub with them afterwards and say, okay, tell me, what was it like? Uh, and I really had to rethink what it meant to be a preacher. It meant in the first place to be a listener. I had to learn their language, their terms, how they thought. That was a big moment of conversion for me. I can, I've had so many. I'd say a second one was, it was not long after I'd been ordained a priest. And this is how it, it normally happens. I suddenly felt bored with God. I didn't stop believing in God, but I suddenly became much more interested in other things, like literature, art, and sex, and, you know, I suddenly thought I wanted to, have I locked myself into this small space? Uh, and it was, it was tough, I endured, but you know when it came back to me, it was in the most surprising place, it was in the Garden of Gethsemane in Jerusalem. And I was sitting there, and suddenly I became aware again of the presence of God. Mm. And it wasn't that God had been hiding. I'd probably been hiding. And it was returning to the core of my being, where God always was. But I had drifted away from him. Mm. St. Augustine has a wonderful thing where he talks about God, I was far from you, but you were not far from me. And I think sometimes there are these moments of conversion, you, you discover again the presence of God, who's always been there. And if you will indulge me with a third moment of conversion. Of course. Illumination, I'd say, rather than conversion. Hmm. I was uh, in Rwanda at the beginning of the genocide. Uh, as Master of the Order on my first visitation in 1993. And things were beginning to boil. And the Belgian ambassador said, uh, don't go out today. Yeah, everything's on fire. But I was young and foolish. And we went out to the north of the country. And we began to see all the, the terrible things that were happening. And particularly, I was bowled over going into a kid's hospital where they'd lost arms and legs. I remember this kid who'd lost both his legs and an arm and an eye, and his father was sitting beside him weeping. And I went out into the bush uh, with a kid accompanying me, and I just wept. And I went to our Dominican sisters, and I knew I had something to say. I had to say something, but I couldn't think of anything to say. What can you say? So, but I remembered I had something to do, which is to take the bread and remember how Jesus 
said on the night before his death, this is my body and I give it to you. And sometimes you don't have anything to say. Sometimes you're out of your depth. But you have something to do. You, a sacramental gesture, which is a great gesture of hope. And that transformed my understanding of the Eucharist. Father Timothy, I'm interested in asking you this question as a young theologian myself. If you were to, say, write a letter to an emerging theologian or a younger theologian about the craft itself and kind of in today's context, what advice would would you give or what words would you write in that letter? You know, Wittgenstein was asked once, what what would he say to a philosopher where he met him? And Wittgenstein said, take your time. (laughs) And I think that's a very good advice. Take your time. (laughs) Dwell with difficult questions. It's very easy to be tempted to try to find a quick answer that'll get you through the next lecture, the next article. Live with difficult questions. (laughs) Over time, come back to them. You know, Pope John Paul wrote this, this invitation to the church, Duc in altum, get into the depths, get out of your depths. And it's very tempting as a, as a theologian, not only at the beginning, Dennis, but all the way through, it's very tempting to want to master an area. This is my little field. I'm the world's greatest expert on the final verses of Mark's Gospel. <laughs> But do, don't too quickly let yourself be confined and be voracious. Read everything. Well, not everything, you know. Read the really good thinkers. Mm-hmm. Read the best thinkers. Read the challenging ones. So get out of your depth and don't see theology as a nice little secure area where I can earn my living and get my tenure and publish my three articles a year on on the same old boring topic. But be a bit adventurous. So, Father Timothy, hearing you speak last week, I was taken by another experience, encounter that you had with suffering. You talked about the Rwandan genocide, the the beginning of the Rwandan genocide, and and we're seeing another genocide taking place in Syria and Iraq where the Dominicans have deep roots. And I was wondering if you could, if you could talk a little bit about what your experiences in the Middle East were like and what some of, some of the insights that developed from your time there. Particularly, I was taken by your, your description of what it means to remain in a place that is torn by war you know, because we hear an awful lot in the West about Syrian refugees, and for sure we need to be present to them, but we don't do a lot of thinking about those who remain behind. Mm-hmm. One of the great afflictions of our time is terrorism. Terror makes you terrified. That's the aim. Uh, and, and fear makes you withdraw into yourself and not want to, to be present uh, to these places of suffering. And I think that it's part of our witness, you know, which is the word in which we get martyrdom, is to be, just to be there. Uh, and, and not worry all the time about, um, oh, am I going to be safe? I might have recounted about how the first time I went to Baghdad was in the time of Saddam Hussein. 
And I, I listened to the World Service, the BBC World Service, before I went to sleep at night. And I, I learned, to my alarm, that Baghdad might be bombed that evening by American and British bombs, which was discouraging. And uh, the next morning when I said to our brother Yusuf, who's now the Archbishop of Kirkuk, I said, uh, Yusuf, were you afraid we might get killed in the night? And Yusuf said, Timothy, when you've lived with death so long, you're not afraid of death. You just have to hope you believe in the resurrection. And I'm going into these places of, uh, of suffering, strips away the little concerns. So that in the end, you are confronted with the only important questions is, is whether you believe in God, whether you believe in the resurrection, whether you believe in the, in the triumph of life over death. Uh, and our brothers and sisters who remain uh, witness to that. They get up and do what they have to do that day, knowing that it may be their last day. But that's the witness. I will be with you until the end of time, uh, Jesus says at the very end of Matthew's Gospel. And if, if God remains with us until the end of time, then we have to remain, sometimes in the difficult places. In Syria, I was deeply moved staying in this monastery, which is just while we were there, they said three miles from the front line with ISIS. And you could hear the fighting every night. But every morning for, for, for morning prayer, they would ring the bell defiantly. And I used to love that. Uh, the, the people in the ISIS trenches could hear the bell ringing, summoning to prayer. And it's a sort of defiance. But it's saying, we're still here. We're still praying. We're still trusting, and we're still hoping. So uh, the the endurance of of these of our brothers and sisters, of our fellow Christians uh, in the Middle East, is, is a wonderful and powerful witness of hope. It's just fantastic. Yeah. Answer. Um, so we've talked. We've talked a little bit about call. We've talked about. We've talked about the craft of the theologian and the minister. What Father Timothy, or whom, uh, for whom would you be the patron saint? <laughs> Probably, I'd be the patron saint of mess. <laughs> I, my room is terrible. I mean, do you know one of the reasons I travel is I can get away from the mess of my rooms. <laughs> Piles of stuff all over the floor. I'll have to move on soon because otherwise this room will become a terrible mess. <laughs> but it's not just a joke. Our culture has become very controlling. Charles Taylor, who's one of my, my favorite thinkers, whom I strongly recommend, uh, in the secular age, he plots elements of the emergence of what some people call the culture of control. So you have the expansion of the state, you get the expansion of law, standing armies, regulation, uh, and it becomes oppressive. Mm -hmm. And uh, the culture of control sometimes affects the church as well. And I think one of what Pope Francis wants to do, one of the things, 
is to let go, undo a bit the mechanisms of control so that there's more spontaneity. He says the spirit takes us we know not where, quoting St. John's Gospel. So we have to let ourselves be more uh, obedient to the unexpected uh, invitations of the Holy Spirit. God goes on surprising us. And that's why Pope Francis, the, the World Youth Day, said that he wanted a bit more mess. Because the Holy Spirit hovers over, the, you know, the, the void and the chaos at the beginning of creation. He brings something to be. Uh, we have to let the Holy Spirit hover over our own messes. We all get in messes. Yeah. We have to let the Holy Spirit bring something new. Uh, and that implies being unafraid uh, of the unexpected. Fantastic. Thank you. Is there a different profession that you might have tried out if things had been different or something that something else you might have liked to attempted? To when attempt? I was eight years old and a, a prep school boy, as we'd say in England, I remember this old colonel came down and he talked about reforesting the Sahara Desert. And that really captured my imagination, and I've never quite lost it. And I've always thought that one of the things I might like to have done would to have been a forester. Hmm. Not those sort of boring forests where you get exactly the same trees planted in straight lines, but to cultivate forest Hmm. with all its ecological complexity. So I think some area of gardening, forestation, would have been a very beautiful way to spend one's life. One in a way you have been, right? You're, even your answer about the about being the patron saint of of mess, you, you you don't get to be a you don't get to be a forester unless you're willing to get your hands dirty. That's right. I think I had a romantic idea of a forester. I think I would imagine that I would be riding around on my horse, you know, encouraging <laughs> other people to get their hands dirty. But I grew up in, as I said, a bit in the country, and my mother loved her compost heap. Mm. Her compost heap was a creation of art, uh, and which was cultivated through the years. Uh, and there's something absolutely wonderful about the idea of a good compost heap, <laughs> in which all sorts of things go in to to add their own richness to the soil. Yeah. I'm thinking as you're, you're speaking about Wendell Berry's great poem in which the words practice resurrection appear. He's talking about the land around his farm and he said, he states practice resurrection. How do we practice resurrection? How do we practice resurrection? Well, every act of forgiveness is a little resurrection. Forgiveness isn't primarily about uh, letting things go, although that's one of the meanings of uh, one of the Greek words. Forgiveness is about the creativity that lets a little resurrection happen, because there was really only one act of forgiveness. The only real act of forgiveness is the raising of Jesus from the dead, where the, the, the dead wood of the cross flowered. In the Middle Ages, you have all these images of the cross flowering on Easter Sunday. I saw in Abingdon near Oxford the other day this 
Jesus crucified on a lily. Hmm. That's Easter. That's forgiveness. The dead wood flowers. In, in Chile, uh, on Easter Sunday, they raise the cross and it's covered with, with flowers. And I think actually, you know, the, de the desert blooms. When I was in Algeria not long ago, we went out uh, walking on the dunes and it had rained the night before and there were all these little tiny plants sticking through. That's resurrection. That's a sort of mercy. Hmm. Uh, one of the reasons I went back to Algeria was because uh, our brother, Pierre Claverie, the Bishop of Oran, was assassinated. And the brethren very bravely remained. A lot of people said, go. They said to Pierre Claverie, go. And he said, we are standing at the foot of the cross. We must remain. And he was murdered. And when I went back to his tomb recently, it was covered with flowers. Uh, these are flowers left by Muslims, as well as Christians. And this is a sort of recurrent experience of my life, is how uh, you go to the places of suffering and you will find flowers. And that is a beautiful place for us to end uh, this episode of our Daily Theology podcast. Father Timothy, we cannot thank you enough for this opportunity to be with you, to sit at your feet, and, and to listen to your wisdom from countless years of ministry and going into the broken places. So thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much. The Daily Theology Podcast is produced bi-weekly by dailytheology.org. Daily Theology is a Catholic blog that pursues faith-seeking understanding in everyday life. You can find us online at dailytheology.org, on Facebook at Daily Theology, or on Twitter at Daily Theo. 